Welcome back to Season 2 of the Suburban Motivation Podcast. Join me, Brad, each week as my guests and I share incredible and powerful sobriety stories. We are here to show sobriety as possible, one story at a time. Let's go. On this episode, we have Frankie Loyal, who has 20-plus years sober. Frankie plays Hank in the hit TV show Mayans, and he credits all of his success to his sobriety. Early on in his life, Frankie had a tough time fitting in and was on a destructive path to nowhere fast. He was able to find his people, follow some suggestions, and that made all the difference. This is Frankie's story on the Sober Motivation Podcast. Sober Buddy has added a brand new community section to the app. I can't wait for you all to check out the new live Zoom groups we host two times per day. You can also plug into the news feed and private groups that are also available. So track your sober days and get connected with others all in one place. Download the Sober Buddy app today in your favorite app store and give it a try. And be sure to sign up for the live hosted Zoom groups. You can catch me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the app. Alrighty, let's get to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Sober Motivation Podcast. Today we've got my friend Frankie. Frankie Loyal. From the hit TV show Mayans on FX, Frankie plays a character named Hank. And Frankie, you've got 20 years sober. Is that right? 20 years. Yeah, 2002. Wow, that's incredible. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's a, it's a nice thing we're doing here. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking time to, to do this. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners will as well. Why don't we jump right in and you just get us started at the beginning of your life? Oh, geez. Well, <laughs> that's a long one. I mean, I'm hitting 53, so I got a few years under my belt. Uh, <laughs> let me see. Well, <clears throat> I was born out in Southern California, out in the desert area, but uh, family relocated up to Northern California. My father was a law enforcement officer which, you know, led into a bunch of other things growing up as a kid. But, uh, you know, he and my mother both, uh, well, my father was an orphan and my mother came from a household where she only had a mother in the household. So uh, there was a lot of alcoholism on both sides of the family. You know, for the tools that my parents weren't given and how they ended up turning out, you know, within their lives for not just me, but my sisters, they did a damn good job. Me, I, I kind of went on the wayside quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I think I was an introverted kid. I was really into science fiction movies and Kiss albums and Bowie albums. And I kind of was into that trip. And I don't know, way back then, if you were off the cuff, people definitely let you know that you were different. And I think the seeds of alienation were already kind of there anyway. And uh, that kind of, I think, builds up with a lot of internal messaging you give yourself growing up that isn't always on point because you don't really comprehend everything. But I found myself in it, you know, into drinking drugs, not so much. I got, I got in a lot of trouble as a teenager drinking it. It, uh, it ended me up in, in juvie or in jail overnight here and there. I wasn't a good drinker. Yeah. Gotcha on that. What was high school like for you? Uh, I went to like six or seven of them. If I remember correctly, I got, I unfortunately got kicked out of most of them and it wasn't on purpose. You know, I, uh, I always liked reading growing up. I was always fascinated with, you know, everything from philosophy and, and mythologies and anything a little more on the artistic 
artistic end, you know, uh, literature. Uh, and, and I read a lot. My whole thing was I just didn't feel like I fit in in, in, in the population of, of teenagers. I don't know if I just felt like I didn't want to be part of it. So I made myself, you know, unavailable. I just found myself expelled a lot. And I, I liked learning. That was the downside. It wasn't I didn't like learning or I didn't want to take in knowledge. But I, I don't think I was really buying into the whole program that back then they, you know, they put on people. You know, resisting causes a lot of problems, especially when you're younger. Yeah, that's the truth. I mean, I can relate to that. I never felt like I fit in and I had countless problems and stuff with, with high school and getting along with people, yeah. being, being part of stuff was definitely a problem. So alcohol comes into your life and what does that look like? I ran away from home a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I found myself in, in the uh, punk rock, you know, hardcore, hardcore scene growing up in the, in the 80s. So I really, uh, I'm, I still am very much, you know, embedded in, 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 in that world because you had kids that were, re you know, that were rejects, uh, social misfits, people that didn't fit in so well. But there was kind of a, there was, there was a common ground with a lot of people back then. We stuck together and kind of had my own tribe and I didn't feel so alone. And um, still, I mean, some of the people I, you know, was out on the streets with are still some of my, my dearest friends. But, you know, there was drugs, there was alcohol. Uh, a lot of people from that time that I was close with, there's a small handful of us left. A lot of them didn't make it, you know. But if it wasn't for them, I don't think I would have got through my teenage years or my younger years. So I'm grateful to them. Yeah, I hear you on that for sure. So what? So after high school, what did that look like for you after those years? Oh, gosh. You know, I, I was just telling somebody this uh, the other night, I I remember being 18 or 19, I, I was in a punk band and we were recording out in the middle of nowhere. And it was one of these areas where there was just these flatlands of just dead land everywhere. And the, the sun was just scorching and didn't have a car, didn't have a motorcycle, didn't have anything. And I remember being a little out of my mind and walking out in the middle of this, I don't even know where it was. I couldn't even find it to this day if I wanted to. And I remember thinking, this is, this is it. This is as good as it's ever going to get. Like it will never get any better than this. And it was such a weird feeling. And I think that triggered a, um, a response for me just to kind of go up everything head on very destructively, you know, up until, up until uh, my thirties before I got sober. What led up to you? Wanted to get sober. Was there rock bottom? We hear we hear that term so often. Was there many rock bottoms? What was your experience? Yeah. You know, I really, I was that guy that uh, I did want to die. But I didn't want to die. But I didn't know why I wanted to live. And uh, I would just have these blackout periods where I would get on my phone and book a plane ticket to pull a geographic to Mexico or I'd take off or, or want to book a ticket to New York just to go somewhere else. And I'd pass out and wake up the next day realizing I booked three plane tickets to, you know, go nowhere except, you know, more financial damage. And I just remember, you know, without getting too deep into it, thinking uh, I was going to leave, leave the planet one day. 
And I woke up one day and realized that I didn't. And uh, I had a few friends that had, had, had gotten sober recently through our, our scene. I was living in San Francisco at the time. And uh, I went to a men's group called BNO, which stands for Boys Night Out. And it was a men's group with uh, ex-cons and punk rockers and bikers and just the, the dirty dozen of the bunch uh, in AA. You know, the people that would, people would be too scared to talk to at a meeting, you know, and that was my first home group. And uh, if it wasn't for my sponsor and, and the guys I had in that fellowship, I think I, <laughs> I would have never gotten sober, you know. So when some people uh, talk about doing 90 and 90, I did a little over 200 and something in 90. I, I didn't have a job at the time because I wasn't employable. And uh, I, I didn't want to drink and I didn't want to die. So I, I would go to sometimes three meetings a day, you know, and I was definitely, uh, even at going to the meetings and doing the program of the steps, I was still white knuckling it. I was resistant. I was scared, confused. And, uh, but I just, I had a feeling it was something I needed to hang on to. And I'm glad I did, you know? Yeah. What about doing the 200 and something meetings in 90 days was helpful for you? Uh, you know, we get so self-centered and so uh, into our own heads, headspace that we think we're the only ones that, that have things going on that we don't realize that there's a whole, you know, a whole tribe of us that have like-minded stories or examples to learn from or just the compassion the empathy uh, that you got from people, the kindness of strangers. Uh, although I knew a lot of people in San Francisco, I just, you, you see people in a different light when you see them in the rooms and uh, you're vulnerable and you're open and, you know, you're a little bit on front street, you know, with your baggage. And uh, I think I, I think that was just a huge thing for me, you know, knowing I, there was going to be another day I was, I was going to see some familiarity that wasn't destructive and it was good. It was good for my well being. better, better than I realized at the time. A lot, a lot of people too, you know, if I know from my, my early experience with, with the rooms and all that stuff, you, you find a place to belong. Like I found a place right. to belong and I never had that before. The only places I really ever felt like I belonged growing up were treatment settings, rehabs, psych wards, and right. you know, fellowship meetings and it definitely it definitely had that that vibe to it that feel to connect with people that were going through or had gone through stuff similar to me so it was that that connection i was craving for so long right. that i found in all the wrong places so for once i felt like right. i kind of found it in the right place so that first that first time you went into this it, it worked for you you know, I would have to say yes, because if you saw the the room full of guys that I was with, these are guys that I uh, I would see at you know some of the punk rock shows, either getting thrown out, getting into trouble, and you know we'd pass each other or see each other on the city bus on the way to or from somewhere, and to see how these guys were just different. Even though I always liked them, you know, as they were, wasn't, but it was just like, wow, really, this is how you're living now? You know, I kind of want to do this. And as much as I never wanted to belong to anything, I, I kind of wanted to belong to that club, still do. And uh, 
there was something about it. Now, I, I do have to say there's some meetings that we all go to, I believe, I don't want to speak for everybody, but for myself that you feel really uncomfortable and you do not feel like you can relate to somebody's story. It's, you know, even if you try, you just have that weird uh, thing sometimes. But these are all guys that were kind of in the same, you know, boat as I was, you know, some better, some worse. You know, we all been busted at one time. We were all kind of into the same vibe. We kind of got it. You know, I don't know if it was that subculture that we came up in that added to that, but it it uh, definitely, you know, made me stick around. Yeah. And, and what day did you, what, when's your sober date? May 21st, 2002. I, I have it tattooed on my wrist. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's pretty okay. noticeable. So yeah, if I ever drop the ball, then it's going to go. And I, I don't really think I want that. No. Yeah. And that's cool. When, when did motorcycles and all this stuff come into play? Well, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I don't know how it is now, but, but, but as a, as a young, young man, you know, Flash Gordon and Evil Knievel and guys like that, they were, they were my heroes. My little sister, uh, Annie, her godfather, who I'm still close with to this day, he uh, his name was Barstow Tommy. He's an old biker, and he uh, would trick out choppers and and motorcycles, and I would ride on the back of his his bike when I was a kid. And um, he got me an Easy Rider poster when I was a kid. And my dad, being a cop, keep in mind, you know, wasn't really all for me having it up on the wall, but it, my mom kind of said, "Hey, let him let him do his thing." wasn't until I watched the movie I realized it didn't have that much to do with motorcycles, but it just was something that kind of, you know, intrigued me. And, uh, you know, it wasn't even just motorcycles. It was like BMX, you know, trick riding, you know, being a little bit crazy on the bikes too. That's something that, that was a two wheeled outlet for me as well. So, but it, today, you know, riding motorcycles for me is, that's just my rush sometimes. Uh, it's where I can kind of be in the moment, but also I can wander a little bit if traffic's not too crazy or the conditions aren't too crazy. And I can just, I just feel everything, you know, and it's very therapeutic. A lot of people who don't ride probably wouldn't understand it, but once, you know, you're, you do it, it's just, it's part of you. And there's no way I would consider doing the riding I do if, if I was drinking or high or anything like that. It's just that, you know, it's a sobering thought, you know? Yeah, no, that's super cool. So how did you get involved with the TV show then? Well, I I auditioned for Sons, Sons of Anarchy. It was another show that was part of, you know, we're part of the same universe and uh, didn't get a role. And I was bummed at the time, but that character was killed off. And, you know, if I had gotten that role at the time, which financially I desperately needed it, uh, I wouldn't be on this show. But uh, I kind of put it out there. I mean, for me, I mean, the show's going on its technically fifth season, but sixth year because we had some delays with COVID and everything else. But it's been over 10 years for me. I knew there was going to be a, a spinoff of, of some sort. So I kind of put it out there in the universe years ago that this is just something I wanted to be part of. And, you know, I, uh, I pretty much kicked the doors down at casting to be seen. Now, I've, I've done acting for, you know, a little under 30 years. I've had good years and slow years, but uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't having such a good time with the acting until you know the thing with Mayans happened. 
and that's it's it's been a crazy ride you know there's been a, a lot to it so what is the character that you play in the show and what's he like yeah i play a guy named hank loza he's uh the sergeant of arms he's the enforcer of the club and he's a veteran club member uh he's you know one of the older older guys in the club and you know he's his job is to oversee the responsibilities and protection of the club, but he also has to be very diplomatic and firm when, you know, he has to put his fist down on things. But at the same time, you know, internally, he's a really conflicted guy. He, uh, he sees a uh, young guys doing things he knows that they shouldn't be doing because it gets us into trouble. And then there's the old guys that, you know, tend to stick to the old ways that don't change things. You know, it's those things that never seem to change. You only get worse. And, He's holding up two dams that I always say that eventually could collapse and he'll probably be the one who drowns. But I think he, uh, you know, he's, he loves his mom. I mean, that's one thing we know on the show. He's very you know, protective of his mom and, you know, he means well, but he just doesn't show his uh, emotions too much to his club brothers. Very, very few. No, very few times. That sounds like a full job outside of the acting in itself, the, the whole character part. I'll tell you what, it that's like sobriety acting has definitely been uh something that's kind of kept me on the on the on the straight path of, you know, want the truth. I put myself on front street saying that, but it's the truth. What would any of this stuff be possible without sobriety? No, absolutely not. Um I would have blown my first paycheck and my opportunities probably by just self-sabotage and i'm not saying like running down the street with no clothes on or riding down on the motorcycle you know jumping into a billboard i just mean the things that i struggled with in sobriety when i got the show you know am i good enough uh you know i'm out there in the public eye if people knew that you know i'm a recovering alcoholic they probably wouldn't like me all those things that a lot of people go through you know and on top of sobriety it, it that was hard enough, but I had the clarity enough to kind of gauge it and the, the support. I think being drunk or drinking or using, I just would have had a very clouded, um, destructive, you know, I don't even think they would have got me to the door, to be honest. You know, I would have held up good for a while because we all do. And then I might have just caved. Yeah. You know? Wow. I'm putting myself on front street for you. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It, it it's hard to keep things together. But you're right, though. We we can do really well to keep things together for a bit, put on a good show. But the longer people are around, it, it all gets exposed eventually, right? So, well, yeah. I mean, when I got sober, I went back to a job that I left before I left the country, and uh, I said I want to get hired back. And I told them that you know I'd been in uh, AA and recovery, and I'd been sober for a few months, and they were shocked because I hid it from them. I hit my drinking from people when I did my last stages of drinking. I, I, nobody knew I, I drank. I, in fact, in San Francisco, it's such a condensed neighborhood. I would go to another neighborhood to buy my alcohol because I didn't want to see, be seen buying it in, in my neighborhood. I was so ashamed. So when I told them that, you know, I had a drink, they, they, at first just, they, they were kind of dumbfounded. They didn't believe me, but it is true. You know, I, I was a hard thing to do when I look back on it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And they took you back for the job. They did. And I, and it was funny because the one superior that I bumped heads with the most and we didn't think much of each other. And I don't blame him for not thinking much of me at the time. He was the one that went to my defense and had me rehired. Wow. So 
it's funny how that all plays out, right? It, it, it is. It, yeah. You know, in sobriety, opportunities just come from so many different places. What has yeah. been the response like from people around you and stuff with sharing your, your journey of sobriety and stuff? Because you, you mentioned that that was something that you got in your head about when you started out on this journey. What's been the response from fans, from everybody else that's part of it? You know, I wear my heart on my sleeve sometimes when it comes to my sobriety. I, I feel like uh, when we hide our, you know, from our pain and, and we mask ourselves to be a certain way, you know, before we stepped in, step into the rooms, you know, I, I got sick and tired of doing that, you know, uh, once I got sober. So when I, I talk to, you know, if somebody asked me about it, you know, you know, like if I meet somebody at a signing or at a motorcycle runner, you know, I'll be the first one to say, look, you know, I'm not here and you're down here just because I'm doing this. I have a job just like you, you know, it's it, at the end of the day, it's, it's a job, you know, it's a job that I love. It's a job I never thought I would end up doing. And, and believe me, I, I punch myself in the face for that, but I screwed up. You know, I bottomed out. I did everything that they say you're not supposed to do in life. And I fell my way back. And I tell people, I hope that you can just look at the basics of that. And when you feel that you just can't come back from wherever you are and you're done and you're spent and you think this is it, you played your last card, that that's just a lie. You know, you can pick yourself up and you can do whatever it is that you want to do uh, when they talk about our primary purpose, you know. Going against what I'm doing now would have been that I was going against my primary purpose the whole time. And then, you know, and I get kind of choked up when I, I think about that now because, you know, I shouldn't even be here. And I know that. So that I think I, I look at that every day and uh, I just tell people, hey, you know, there's nothing I'm doing that you couldn't do. And, and uh, I was the biggest group in the world. I don't want somebody to see me as some shiny, happy you know, whatever, you know, sometimes they put actors or musicians or public figures on pe pedestals that it's like, look, we're, we, you know, we bleed red blood, you know, we're, we're all, you know, none of us are immune from death. You know, we all have our, our humanity and we also have our strengths. And we also have our weaknesses. So I don't ever want to feel like I'm, somebody feels like I'm in a different place in the air. My whole thing is I want to connect because I've been so disconnected. And so alienated, whether I did it to myself or I was alienated. You know, I, I don't want that. You know, you go too far in your journey and to put yourself above anybody, then, then you got it all wrong. You know, um, the only thing about this and sobriety, I tell people that's the hardest thing for me is clarity. You know, be careful for what you wish for. When you get that clarity, you think that you get the answers you want. Sometimes you'll see things you don't want to see about yourself and about your life. But then it's your choice to, you know, turn it around if if that's what you want to do. So they're hard truths, you know. Yeah. And you can't save people from themselves, but you can definitely say, hey, man, <laughs> I was that example of what not to do. You know, spare yourself if you can't. But, you know, if you're not, I'll be there to save a seat for you if you want that. Yeah, no, that that's that's beautiful. I love that. What advice would you give people? I mean, you just dropped a ton, a ton there, but do you have any sort of specific things that people, if they were listening to this podcast, if they were struggling to get or stay sober? 
I can only say this, you know, I grew up in a really small town where when I go back and visit, it breaks my heart because it's just filled with hopelessness. It, it embodies it. No change, no progress, just a lot of broken souls, broken people. And I remember being a, a young kid being broken in that environment. And it can carry on into your adult years if you let it. I just tell people, like, if you see yourself in, in any kind of position like that, you know, and your mind is telling you that this is as good as it's going to get, or you can't do better, or you can't have better, it's a lie. You know, it's like, just know that that voice is just messing with you. You know, it's not the truth unless you believe it and don't believe it. And you can live your best life. You just have to keep, you have to just keep pushing forward. And somebody, somebody told me that, you know, it, it, uh, I remember Katie Seagal said that once, right? Uh, people know her as Peg Bundy or, or Gemma uh, Teller on Sons. I, I remember, you know, I read somewhere or somewhere she said that, you know, uh, I think I had 10 years under my belt. And, uh, and she was right, you know, about where you end up. And, and I actually, you know, last time we spoke, I actually told her, I'm like, you might not remember this, but you, you talked me off a ledge. You know, I was in such a bad place and your message really, you know, and she was just talking I and mean, it was nothing, you know, and, and, and it's just those things that, that we hear from other people, you know, that, that, that you can tell they've lived a life and, uh, don't give up, you know? Yeah. Don't give up. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful too. Yeah. And, and keep going and get involved with other good people. I think from, yes. like, from, you know, from your story too, a little bit of what you shared there, these groups really helped you because you got to connect with other people that you could connect with that shared a, a similar type journey that helped you. Huge, huge. I mean, some of the guys from my home group 20 years in were, you know, still very connected. You know, it's, it's a trip, you know, and, and we were the ones that <laughs> people would kind of shudder when they'd see us at meetings sometimes, you know, but they've, they've held true to their sobriety. It's all they got. It's all I got. You know? Without your sobriety, does everything fall apart? I believe it does. I believe, you know, you don't even have to pick up a drink, but I think you can fall into the old ways of thinking, which I think our thoughts can be really damaging if we don't steer them in the right you know, direction or mindset. So I believe that. Yeah. 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 Same here. Yeah. For me, I mean, I, I heard it. Uh, one thing once everything you put above your sobriety, above your recovery will be the first thing you lose anything you put above yeah. it. And I mean, I believe that for me because it was just, and even I'd like the point you made there too, about it doesn't even have to be about the drink or the drug, but it's that way of thinking because the drink, the alcohol, the drugs were never my problem. I was the problem, the way I thought, the way I, right. the way I process everything, because even after I quit the drugs, and I still had a lot of work to do. The things were not good, you know, to begin it. But, right. but that is a good thing to get out of your system. It gives you the ability to to take the next step. So it it is, and you know, it's it's weird. Uh, you know, this is something in the past couple of years. You know, I experienced. I thought I was going to end up taking a drink a couple of years ago. You know, I can I can admit it and say it. Uh, my father died. We had a very tough relationship. We did not speak. You know, when I did speak to him, he died three minutes later. He was dying. And I couldn't see him because of the whole COVID restrictions. And we were filming and 
you know, I was so angry at him in some ways that I internalized all that and thought, you know, I was justified in it because that was the young kid in me and the, and the angry, you know, grown man and whatever, whatever BS you want to call it. And I'll tell you what, uh, the, the loss that I went through with his passing and, and uh, the, the stubbornness that, you know, was on my part, you know, it, 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 it almost took me out, you know, and, uh, but, you know, I hung in there. I got, you know, I had my, my support group and, and uh, I was able to get on the other side and I see that whole scenario so differently now. You know, I see my, my father is, you know, a beautifully flawed human being who had his, you know, issues like we have ours and, and, you know, there were so many good things about him, but I was too angry to want to see it, even in sobriety, you know, because he was my father. So it was a different situation. And, and so many things in me changed after that, you know, and and I told my mom, I go, you know, his passing, you know, it, it was a hard thing, but it was also a gift because it, it it I had to look at him for who he was and realize that, you know, I really love the guy. And a lot of my pain and sometimes my drinking and my acting out or whatever, you know, I attribute a lot to my relationship with my father, you know. So it was very healing, but it, it wasn't an easy process, I'll tell you that much, you know. Yeah. And I think that's what our our higher power or or whatever wants for us to to see the light that you know we you know we need to embrace that love or that forgiveness for that, you know. Cuz I'm I'm not always the most forgiving person. I'm not always the most emotionally like responsive person at times sometimes cuz I've got my issues like everybody else and far from perfect and I'll I'll proudly admit that, but I try really really hard. You know, try really hard. And then forgiveness part two is, is such a important part in recovery, forgiving ourselves, forgiving yeah. relationships and, and how things go. I, I just love that part of sobriety though, that we're able to do that. Like we're able to work on that stuff. You jumped right in there to your home group, your support group. You know, I mean, exactly by the script of how to do things. So, but I appreciate you. I appreciate you being honest about that stuff too, about the challenges, even with like, you know, I think some people, like you were talking about with acting, people put you on a pedestal. I think some people do this with recovery, 20 years, 30 years, pedestal. I think it's in incredible that you're sharing this stuff that life still happens. Yeah. Well, you know, those two things could be gone tomorrow. You could pick up a drink and that's out the window uh, for the time being. Uh, your career could be gone tomorrow. Well, how do you want to be remembered or how do you want to be seen? You know, and I think that's what it is. I, I, I want to, you know, I try to be a really decent human being. You know, I don't do it because I'm out trying to be noticed doing uh, uh, gifts of or, or acts of, of, of service. I really need to pay it forward. My, my life, a good chunk of my life is, is, is uh, paying things forward because I had a lot of help in recovery. You know, I was going to be evicted from my place. You know, I should have been out on the street. And the landlady said, you know, what are we going to do about this? Really tough Russian lady. And I said, well, I'm, I've been going to meetings. And she asked me, are you lying to me? Because I'll know if you're lying. I was like, no, I'm, I'm really going. And I'm in a bad spot. And she said, you better bring me a chip every 30 days. And it better be real. <laughs> and I did. And uh, I didn't have money to eat. There was a nice man. Uh, we called him a uh, 
Gentle Jack, who lived around the corner, who had a liquor store in Upper Haight in San Francisco, would give me groceries to eat. And then when I was working, I was able to pay him back. And I think about things like that. So I will always try to pay it forward somehow. Like, you know, I think I, I do a lot of charities, but I, I do them with that in mind. I don't do it for any other reason. I do it because I know I had help. And I'm as long as I can walk and I can breathe and get out of bed, well, I got some people to help, you know? Yeah. Paid forward. This, yeah. Service part. Yeah. I love yeah. that. And, and, and you feel good. You can feel good about it too. You know I mean? A big part of my story was I took, I took a lot of stuff from this world, took from people and just so selfish. So I really enjoyed that giving back part. Christmas is coming up. We're going to grab a few, right. you know, things from the mall to get for people and stuff. And I never had an opportunity to do that stuff either. And I'm, I'm blessed today to be able to do that and show my kids that we can do that sort of stuff. And I mean, without the sobriety though, I wouldn't do it. Right. The only, the only way I ever did stuff for people is I would do a little bit because I knew that they would deliver more. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was very, it was very bad, but. But, you know, it, when I look at all these scenarios, you know, these things that we do that we're not proud of, you know, and when we talked about forgiveness, you know, guy broke it down for me in a way that it sunk in. You know, he said, hey, you know, people that, that you did wrong, people who did you wrong, it's the same playing field. If both of you were in a good place at the time you did what you did, you never would have thought to do what you did. And when he said it like that, I was like, wow. Yeah, if I was in a better place, I wouldn't have, you know. And that just, you know, because I, you know, it was sort of like, I'm not going to forgive, but I expect to be forgiven. You know, that whole thing we go through at times. And and that's when he kind of laid it out for me. And I try to apply that to things sometimes. If this person was in a better place and, you know, maybe they, and that's not always easy, you know. It makes perfect sense. It allows us to move on from it. But look, yeah. buddy, this has been incredible. You've really opened the door for us. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. You taking time. While you're busy with everything here, um, never too busy for you. Before we before we jump, how many motorcycles do you have? Like, do you own? I I have two, and I have a third one that we're working on. To hopefully, I'll have it in about a month or two. They all have different purposes. So yeah. So know, these are, yeah. are these choppers, or are these just your stock? They're they're, they're Harley's. You know, I've got yeah. I've got a Road King that's a little you know a little. I think it's a little flashy, and then I have a Street Glide that's it's a little flashy, but I. I use that more for my daily, you know, for splitting lanes and cutting through on the freeway because uh, I, I don't have a car. So, you know, I, I ride every day. So when the rain hits, things get, you know, weird. I got to make sure the bikes are running perfect. So this, I can't have it glitching out right before we start filming because, you know, I have about a 40 mile ride out every day. So Okay. And do they, and you don't use your own bike for the show then? They have bikes for no, you? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I have a, a nice bike on that show and yeah. God, I hope nothing. I hope it doesn't disappear after filming. Cause it's a nice bike. <laughs> <laughs> Keep an eye on the freeway. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All righty, buddy. Thank well, you thanks. for having me. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you. Thank you for letting me do this. Of course. Thank you so much. Well, everyone, there's Frankie loyal. Mayans on FX. What an incredible human. Very gentle, very honest with his story. 
struggled early on, has able to put 20 years of sobriety together, got a great opportunity to be on this show, and he's really paying it forward. This was a really great episode. I had a lot of fun throughout the entire process of Frankie's story. It was it was good, and he shared some tough stuff with us. So I have to say the huge props to Frankie, and I hope this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. I think it will. I hope you're loving season two. We've had some incredible people already. There's lots more to come. If you're enjoying the podcast, help me out here. Leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Share this podcast with your friends. Share it on social media. Help me out. Let's get this to number one and let's normalize sobriety. I'll see you guys on the next episode. Two dropping next week. Until then, I'm out.